your morning and uh, encouraged you. And again, I just want to welcome you today and, and wish you a Merry Christmas week. This is a, a special week for all of us as believers. Uh, this is more than just the, the, uh, the seasonal cultural trappings that are celebrated this time of year. This is, this is the time of year where we remember that God became a man, that God broke into human history and personally revealed himself to us and, and reconciled us to him through his very life. And that is what we celebrate this Christmas. And so uh, I just pray that this week especially you would be uh, just incredibly blessed, that you would have a true spirit of joy, a spirit of worship and celebration and thanksgiving as we think about our Messiah, as we think about all that we have to be thankful for, uh, even in the midst of a difficult time that we find ourselves in. Well, I'm going to invite you to join me for a word of prayer here, and then we're going to jump into our sermon this morning, continuing our series in the Gospel of John, picking up in chapter 7. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we would just ask right now that you would open our eyes to the power of this passage this morning. Open our eyes to the incredible truths that are contained here, and as we look to Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, our hope, we pray that you would illuminate the truths of this word so that we would have a bigger vision of you and fall more in love with who you are and all you've done for us. And so we just commit this time to you, Lord. We, we ask that you would use it in our hearts and in our lives for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, how many of you can remember some of the defining moments of your life? Some of the defining moments. You know, if you, if you think back on your lives, I can imagine that there are probably a handful of, of key moments that, that really were pivotal and, and changed the, the course and direction of your life. I, I think back in my own experience of, you know, the, the college I chose to attend and how that was so significant. I, I think of particular jobs that I took over the years and, and uh, work opportunities that I embraced that, that really changed the whole nature of my life and the, the future of my trajectory. I, I think of a, a cute girl that I asked out on a date one time who would ultimately end up becoming my wife and, and the mother of my kids. And, you know, if you think back throughout your life, there are these key moments that at the moment in the time they, they don't necessarily seem to be all that consequential but you look back down the road and you realize wow I mean my life could have taken a whole different course and and everything could have been different that that was so key that was pivotal that decision that I made well today we're going to come to a passage uh, a, a, a section of Jesus's life and ministry that was one of those defining moments in our Lord and Savior's life and ministry. In John chapter 7 today, we're going to see a shift take place, both in John's gospel in terms of his recording of the history of Jesus' ministry, but we're going to see a shift take place in the nature of the response of the people to Jesus. So far in our, in our series here in the Gospel of John, we've seen generally a, a favorable response to Jesus. We've seen the crowds flocking to see Jesus, and we've seen people celebrating Jesus and rejoicing in his ministry. But now, in chapter 7, we're going to see a, a shift begin to take place. We're, we're going to see a, a beginning of growing opposition to Jesus. We're going to see people begin to challenge Jesus and question his authority. We're going to see the crowds begin to, to be divided over this man and, and who he was and what he was claiming. This is a significant passage that really is going to shift everything from here on out in our look at the Gospel of John. From this point forward, in fact, John is actually going to be leading us through the final six months of Jesus' life. Every Sunday from this point forward, we're going to be on the road to Calvary with Jesus as he is quickly coming to his imminent arrest and, and the trials and the crucifixion that would ultimately lead to the, the sacrifice of his life for our sins. And then ultimately, again, the hope of resurrection and new life. But, but today is that pivotal moment where everything changes here in, in John's gospel and in Jesus' ministry. We're in chapter 7 today. This is another long section. This is, this is the, the longest section of Scripture we're going to look at in our series in the Gospel of John. So from this point forward, we're going to be in shorter sections. But, but this is such a pivotal section, uh, I wanted to get a comprehensive view of this passage for us today. 
So we're going to read our passage this morning, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to highlight three observations for you. Three significant pieces from this record here this morning that I think will, will illuminate truths for us about who Jesus is and, and what he offers us. So let's read together. You can follow along on the screens or in your own Bible. I'll read this for us, starting in chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would no longer go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon, who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the great feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Here in this passage, we begin to see this this shift taking place. The the shift taking place in Jesus' ministry, and and you can almost feel the tension building, and and you can see the beginning of the crowds being divided over their response to Jesus and his teaching. In our passage this morning, I want to highlight three things that John reveals for us here. We're not going to be able to break into detail all of the, the rich truths that are found here, but, but there are three key things that I want to highlight for us today that I think will help us really get a handle on this passage and what exactly is so powerful about it that led this moment in Jesus' ministry to be such a pivotal, transformative time in his life and, and in his ministry. We're, we're, we're going to start out, number one, this morning, John here in chapter 7. The first, the first piece I want to highlight is that John reveals for us a sovereign surprise. A sovereign surprise. Now, in, in order to fully appreciate our passage this morning, we need to understand the, the context in which all of this story takes place. In, in, in verse 2, we, we find that the, the festival of booths was at hand. This festival was also sometimes referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles. The Festival of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, those terms are used interchangeably to refer to to this period of time and, and this event that the Jews had gone to in Jerusalem where we find Jesus teaching here today. This was a a huge festival in the Jewish religion. It was one of the three great feasts or festivals that, that pilgrims would come to Jerusalem for each year. And the Festival of Booths was an eight-day celebration commemorating the Israelites wandering in the wilderness after their exodus out of Egypt and all the ways that God provided for them. So, so you got to understand, this was a time of great joy and celebration. This, was, this would be comparable to our Thanksgiving. This was a time where the people would come and they would celebrate and they would rejoice and they would reflect back on all of the ways that God had provided for their ancestors, saving them from slavery, delivering them through the wandering in the wilderness, all of his miraculous provisions. One of the highlights of this festival was over the course of the eight days, the pilgrims would all come to Jerusalem and they would would erect booths or, or tabernacles, tents, if you will, four-sided dwellings where they would live there for, for eight days. And, and imagine the city of Jerusalem with, with these tents, these makeshift dwellings set up all over the streets on top of people's houses. I mean, everywhere you could see thousands and thousands of these little tabernacles were set up. And the people would live in these dwellings to remind them of the way that they lived as they wandered in the wilderness. They, they were basically camping out over those 40 years as God was leading them through the wilderness. And that's what they commemorated at the Festival of Tabernacles or, or the, the Festival of Booths. And it was a great time of rejoicing. It was also an opportunity for them to to look forward to the fall harvest and then to pray again for God's ongoing blessings over their nation. But but as we're going to see here this morning, the, the Festival of Booths also had some very powerful salvation imagery built into it. Some very powerful imagery that wasn't just about looking back to the past, but also looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come and bring Israel its ultimate deliverance, its ultimate salvation. 
And, and so there, there was this great joy in this, in this celebration, both in remembering God's past faithfulness, also looking forward to his future faithfulness to them. And, and that's the context that we find ourselves in here today. Now, our passage opens up in verses 3 through 5 with an inter- interesting confrontation between Jesus and his brothers. If you look at your, at your Bibles, in verses 3 through 5, we, we see that John reveals to us that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. His own brothers, his own family didn't believe in him. Now, these were his half-brothers, right? Jesus was miraculously, divinely conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary, but then Mary and Joseph went on to have other children. So Jesus, we know from the Bible, had brothers and sisters. And so these brothers here in verses 3 through 5, they, they don't believe in Jesus. And, and as a result, we see them badgering Jesus here in these opening verses. They're almost like goading him, egging him on. Like, like Jesus, hey, you're doing all these great works. You're doing all these incredible things. Hey, anybody who wants to be known, and Jesus, if you really are who you claim to be, if you really want to be known, don't just stay up here in the backwaters of Galilee. Go down to Judea. Go down to Jerusalem where the festival's happening. Show yourself to the people if you really are who you claim to be. Now, it's interesting here, right? John doesn't exactly tell us what the brothers' intentions were. You know, were, were they wanting to get Jesus in trouble? Were, were they trying to expose him as a fraud? We, we, we don't really know. Maybe they were just mocking him? But, but whatever their real motivations were, it, it's clear here that there was some type of animosity between Jesus and his brothers. Maybe it was a bitterness between them or a petty jealousy over all that Jesus could do and the crowds that were following him. We don't know. But, but friends, I want you to imagine this. I mean, this just blows my mind every time I, I read about Jesus' interactions with his brothers, his family. I mean, imagine here, knowing Jesus as intimately as a brother. I mean, friends, there are few relationships in this world that are more intimate and connected than that between siblings. Am I right? I mean, my brother to this day is still my best friend. I mean, we know everything about each other's lives. And we care deeply for each other. And we're connected. And here is Jesus' brothers with this intimate knowledge of who he is. And even, John says, even they acknowledge, they recognize his power to do miracles. And yet they still don't believe in him as the Messiah. It just blows my mind. It, it, it takes me back, if you remember a few weeks back when we were in John chapter 4. It reminds me of the distinction, the difference we saw in the response of the Samaritan village to Jesus from the response of the Jews in Galilee to Jesus. Do you remember the story in verse chapter 4? After Jesus ministers to the Samaritan woman, he stayed there in the surrounding area of Samaria. And John tells us that many of the Samaritans believed in him. Why? Because they heard his testimony. They heard the power of his word. They didn't see any miracles. Remember, Jesus didn't do any miracles in Samaria. He just preached the word and they responded in faith. They believed in faith that he was the Messiah. But then John tells us Jesus goes to Galilee, and in Galilee, among the Jews, his own people, he performs these miracles, and yet the Jews don't believe. And if you remember, friends, I made the point in that sermon a few weeks ago, I said, seeing isn't always believing, but believing is always seeing. See, you can see all the miracles and still not believe. And this is what was taking place here in Jesus' brothers. They, they knew who he was. They saw his miracles, but John tells us they still didn't believe in him. How sad. How tragic. It, it, it reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He says, the God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that it cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Even Jesus' own brothers, their eyes, their minds were blinded to the truth of who he was. And, and, and this is why Jesus said to his disciple Thomas after his resurrection, 
If you remember at, at the end of Jesus' ministry after he rose from the grave, Thomas sees Jesus and believes. And Jesus says to Thomas in John 20, 29, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friends, you can see miracles, you can see the wondrous deeds and still not believe. But Jesus says, blessed are those who don't see and yet still believe. They still trust, they still respond in faith. Let me ask you this morning, have you believed in Jesus? Have you put your trust in in his claims and and who he is as the Savior and Messiah of this world? Have you believed in Jesus? Friends, I want to encourage you this morning, don't wait for some supernatural sign. Don't wait for for all the questions you have to be answered. I I talk to skeptics and non-believers often, and and, repeatedly people are like, well, I'm just waiting for God to show himself more clearly to me. Or or they'll tell me, well, you know, I still have all these questions I haven't answered. Friends, look at if you're making excuses like that, you're going to put off believing indefinitely. You're never going to have all the questions answered. You're never going to see enough miracles to satisfy your curiosity. Jesus says, believe in faith, and you will see, and you will be blessed. Now in verses 6 through 10, we find Jesus' response to his brothers. It's a fascinating response. Here his brothers are egging him on. You know, go show yourself. Go down to Jerusalem. And, And Jesus in this really fascinating response. And and this is where we find the sovereign surprise that I referenced here in point one. Jesus responds to his brother, I'm not going to this feast, for my time has not yet come. That's what he says in verse eight. I'm, I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not fully come. But then, did you notice what he does? Two verses later, verse 10. Two verses later, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. What's going on here? I, I, I mean, when I first read this, I was thinking to myself, I mean, what gives, right? I mean, I'm not going to this feast. I am going to the feast. I mean, is Jesus being deceptive? Is he, is he outright lying here? I mean, how do we explain this? Well, the key to understanding this, friends, is in verse 8. It's, it's the word this that Jesus uses in verse 8. Jesus says to his brothers, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not fully come. See, Jesus was saying to his brothers, I'm not going to this feast. I'm not going to the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm not going to the Festival of Booths. But friends, Jesus was going to a feast. He was going to a feast, just not the same feast his brothers were going to. You see, Jesus was going to the true feast. Jesus was going to go to the true celebration. Jesus was going to go to the feast that featured him as the one true tabernacle of God. You see, the brothers thought they were going to the festival of booze, the festival of tabernacles. Jesus says, I'm not going to that feast. I'm going to a different feast. The the feast of, of me, the feast of my celebration, the feast of my revelation as the ultimate tabernacle. You might remember back in John In his prologue in chapter 1, verse 14, John tells us that the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. That that very first Sunday in our series, I talked about that word dwelt. In in the Greek, that word dwelt literally means tabernacle, a a tent, a dwelling place, a, a, a place where God came and he pitched his tent among us. He set up his dwelling among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, I want you to picture the symbolism here. Thousands of Jews were flocking to Jerusalem, going to their great festival, setting up tabernacles all around the city, and yet, all the time, the true tabernacle of God, Jesus, was right there in their midst. Jesus says, I'm not going to this feast. I'm not going to your feast of tabernacles. I'm going to the true feast. I'm going to the true celebration. I'm going to the celebration of my tabernacle, 
the tabernacle of God who, who dwells among us. And Now, friends, when we understand what Jesus is saying here, this not only explains the apparent contradiction in verse 10 where Jesus ends up going to Jerusalem, but it also explains why he was so unconcerned about missing the first four days of this important Jewish festival. Do you notice here in, in verse 14, John says about the middle of the week, Jesus skips the first four days. Why? Well, he tells us here in, verses, uh, in verse 8, he says, I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not fully come. The word time there in the Greek is kairos, and, and it's a unique word for time because it means the opportune time, or, or the right time, or the appointed time. So friends, please understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is basically saying to his brothers, look, at, I, I'm not going to your feast, I'm going to my feast, and, and I'm not going now because my time has not come. The opportune time has not come. God will tell me, the Father will tell me when my time has come to go to my feast. You see, friends, Jesus was on a divine mission. He was fulfilling a divine timeline to reveal a divine message. You know, there's a lot of hopelessness and pessimism in our world today. We've been living in a very tough year. I mean, none of us would have imagined all that we had gone through this time last year. Lockdowns and the political turmoil and the cultural and social unrest and all the distrust and suspicion of our government and our elections. And I mean, it's just like this, this divisive, bitter time that we're living in with, with all these pressures and stresses. And, and we find ourselves with this pessimism and hopelessness. And a lot of people today are looking for a reason to celebrate this Christmas. Maybe even some of you are thinking ahead to this week and thinking, what's the point of celebrating Christmas? This just doesn't seem like a year to celebrate. And friends, I want to tell you, if you are looking for a cause for celebration this Christmas season, don't forget Jesus is still the reason for the season. He was the reason 2,000 years ago, and he is still the reason today. He is still our cause for celebration today. This leads me to point number two this morning. John reveals for us here a supreme sermon. After the sovereign surprise of Jesus going to the feast, after saying, I'm not going to this feast, I'm going to my feast, now we see John reveal to us Jesus' supreme sermon. And I love the, this section, the heart of our passage here in verses 14 through 39. What John shares with us here is, friends, we need to understand this is really an extended four-day-long sermon by Jesus, right? Don't complain to me next time I preach 40 minutes, all right? Jesus was preaching four days here, all right? This is a four-day-long sermon that Jesus preaches that John condenses for us here in a matter of a few verses. But, but here, Jesus reveals to the people of Jerusalem his true identity and the nature of his ministry as the Messiah. And you know what? It's actually a great sermon for the beginning of Christmas week because this sermon that Jesus preaches is literally full of Old Testament messianic promises about the coming Messiah. Promises that, that Jesus here in his own sermon is going to reveal the fulfillment of that he has arrived as the Messiah. Here in this sermon, Jesus preaches a, a four-point sermon. And in this sermon, as the promised Messiah, Jesus reveals that he ministered, number one, he ministered for God's glory. What was Jesus' motivation? Why did he come? What was the basis of his ministry? He tells us right here in verses 16 through 18, he ministers for God's glory. He says in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Friends, Jesus wasn't here for his own glory. He was here to bring glory to his Father in heaven. Jesus is saying, look, if anyone speaks for their own glory, don't listen to him. He doesn't have the truth. But if they speak for the glory of God... That's the person you want to listen to. And Jesus says, I have come to speak to the glory of God. 
This was in fulfillment of a, a, a messianic psalm that King David wrote a thousand years earlier, Psalm 40, verses 7 through 8. King David here, speaking of the greater David, the David to come, the king to come, the Messiah. David says, behold, I have come. Speaking of the Messiah, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Friends, what does Jesus reflect? He says, I didn't come to bring myself glory. I came to bring the Father glory. I delight to do your will, O God. The second thing that John reveals here as the promised Messiah, Jesus then goes on and he tells us that he came and he ministered with God's authority. In verses 19 through 24, we we see this exchange between Jesus and the Jewish people again over the nature of the Sabbath and over his healing on the Sabbath. Remember a few weeks ago, Jesus here is reflecting back to the incident in chapter 5 where he healed the invalid man there in Jerusalem at the pool of Bethesda. And you remember the, the Jewish religious authorities got all upset with Jesus because he was healing on the Sabbath. And then this invalid stood and walked and he was carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying to these religious Pharisees here, look at you're accusing me of breaking the Sabbath, but, but once again, his argument here is, is I have authority over the Sabbath. Like we saw back in chapter 5, the, the heart of Jesus' argument here is, is, look at, as Lord of all, the creator of the Sabbath, I have the right to heal on the Sabbath. And, and that's essentially the same point he's making here in these verses. He's arguing for his authority. He came, he ministered with God's authority. And again, another Old Testament prophecy that we see being fulfilled here. 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, declared, when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame man will leap like a deer. What happened to the invalid? He stood, he walked, he leaped like a deer. He carried his mat. He had been laying there for 30 plus years. And the tongue of the mute will sing for joy and the waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And Jesus here is declaring, I come with God's authority. You've seen that authority at work. I have the authority to heal on the Sabbath because I am the creator and Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus then goes on and in his sermon, as the promised Messiah, Jesus reveals that he ministered as God's emissary. He ministered as God's emissary. We see this in verses 25 through 36. Friends, what is an emissary? An emissary is someone who speaks on behalf of another with their authority. If you've been watching the news in in the last month or two, you've probably heard of all of these historic peace accords that have been signed in the Middle East recently. And, And what has happened is President Trump has sent emissaries on his behalf to to Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and Israel and Morocco. And, and, And through his emissaries, they've negotiated these incredibly historic peace accords. But but it wasn't Trump who went, it was his emissaries who spoke with his authority to bring these agreements to pass. And Jesus now reveals to us here thirdly that that he comes as God's emissary. He comes speaking on behalf of God, representing God to the world. And and of course, ultimately, we know how he did that as God himself, God in flesh. But Jesus says in, in verse 28, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And in him you don't know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Jesus says, as the Messiah, he was sent by God the Father to reveal God's truth to the world. Friends, do you see how how this is such a great Christmas sermon? I mean, this is a perfect sermon for Christmas week. Jesus is revealing himself to be the foretold Messiah. And, And here again, 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Micah, and Micah 5, 2 through 5, tells us, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Friends, this is God speaking. He says, you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
okay? From you, one will come forth from me, God the Father. I'm sending my emissary. He's coming to you through Bethlehem to my people. All of this was foretold hundreds of years earlier. And now Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he declares, God has sent me. I am his emissary. I speak on behalf of the Father in heaven. Fourthly, here in this great sermon Jesus preaches, as the promised Messiah, Jesus ministered to provide God's security. He ministered to provide God's security. And here, friends, is where we get to the title for our sermon this morning. For here is is at the heart of this passage, the pinnacle of chapter 7, here is where Jesus truly rocks the temple. He rocks the temple and everyone present at the Feast of Tabernacles. I I said earlier that that's central to this feast, the the Feast of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles, that that at the heart of this feast were were a whole bunch of powerful gospel salvific images looking forward to the the forecoming Messiah, the the promise of the Messiah and his ultimate deliverance. And, And here, here especially in verses 37 through 39, we see that imagery most clearly. Before we speak about these passages, I want to just provide a little context to what Jesus is about to reveal to us here in verses 37 to 39. See, we need to understand some of the background that took place at the Festival of Booths, some of the daily ritual that took place at this feast. One of the centerpieces of this feast, the the Feast of Tabernacles, the Festival of Booths, one of the centerpieces of this was a daily ritual that took place led by the temple priests. It it was a water ritual. It it was a reenactment of the events of Genesis chapter 17. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 17. The story of God miraculously providing water for the Israelites in the wilderness. If you read Exodus chapter 17, we find the Israelites are out in the middle of the wilderness and they begin to grumble to Moses because they're hungry and they're thirsty and they don't have water to to survive. They can't take care of their families, yet alone their flocks. And and they're complaining to Moses, you brought us out of Egypt. We're out in the middle of this wilderness. And Moses goes to God and he says, God, what should I do? And God says to Moses, Moses, God paraphrasing says, are you kidding me? You you think I led you out of Egypt into this wilderness and I'm not going to provide for you? And so God says to Moses, take your staff and go outside the camp and I'm going to lead you to a rock and I'm going to have you smash your staff down on that rock and watch what happens. And Moses goes out and he strikes the rock and water begins to miraculously flow out of this rock to provide for the needs of the Israelites. And remember, I said one of the things that they celebrated at the Festival of Booths was God's miraculous provisions, right? The way that God provided, and and one of those things was his provision of water, his deliverance, his salvation through the water he provided through this rock that Moses struck. Now, this celebration, this ritual, this water ritual that took place each day, it wasn't just a looking back to this past provision, but it was also a looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come and bring ultimate deliverance. The Messiah would come and bring living water, the Old Testament prophets foretold. The the water ritual that took place each day began in the morning. The priest would come and he would gather the people and he would take a golden pitcher and they would all proceed down Jerusalem to the pool of Siloam and the priest would dip this golden pitcher in the pool of Siloam and then they would all march back to the temple and the priest would climb atop an altar where he would stand upon an altar with a rock on top of the altar. And as the priest held the pitcher of water over the altar, he would declare Zechariah 14.8, on that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. And after reciting this prophecy, the priest would begin to pour the water out over the rock. And as he would pour the water over the rock, all of the people present would chant in unison Isaiah 12, verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
I mean, imagine thousands of people chanting that together as the water is being poured out over this rock, looking back to what God did for the Israelites, looking forward to the day the Messiah would come. And this ritual would be repeated each day of the festival, except for the eighth day, the final day. They didn't do this ritual on the final day. The final day was was reserved for prayers for the future rains and the future harvests. They, they intentionally left out the water ritual. It was almost as if the, there was this subtle reminder that the promises of the Messiah haven't yet been fulfilled. We don't do the water ritual on the last day because it reminds us that we're still longing, still waiting for these living waters to come. Friends, this was the context. And, and here in, in chapter 7, John is going to reveal that something astounding was about to take place. You see, on the eighth day of the festival... John tells us it's the last day, the great day of the festival. Jesus stood up. The day when there is no water ritual. Jesus stood up in the middle of the crowds and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Friends, can you imagine just how powerful that must have been to the thousands of people watching? For the last seven days, they had performed this water ritual, looking forward to the day when the living waters would come, when the Messiah would come and truly quench their thirst. And now on the day that they don't do the ritual, Jesus stands and says, I am the rock of your salvation. I am the one from whom living waters spring. Come and drink freely from the fountains that lead to salvation. And then John goes on and he tells us that that the fountains, the rivers of living water were a reference to the Holy Spirit, God's indwelling presence within us. The Holy Spirit that we talked about last week, the one who seals us, who is our deposit, our guarantee, the one who keeps us eternally secure as God's children, the basis of our eternal security with God. Friends, to the Jews who were there when all of this took place, this would have been absolutely astounding to witness this. And this leads me to point number three this morning. John reveals for us a severing Savior. A severing Savior. We see things begin to shift dramatically here in Jesus' ministry from this point forth. You see, throughout our passage here this morning, when you read this passage, you find a number of references to to the people both muttering and marveling over Jesus. Some muttered about Jesus, grumbling, complaining, wondering, questioning, and others marveled over Jesus. Could this really be the Christ? Could, Could this be the promised one? And John makes it clear that a shift has taken place in the public's response to him. Jesus has created a division between the crowds in Jerusalem, and this is clearly seen here in the final section of our passage. Here in this final section, verses 40 to 52, we see some of the crowd believed he was the Messiah, and some were still skeptical. We, we see some who were ready to proclaim him king, the offspring of David, and others who wanted to arrest him. We, we find that there was a division between the Pharisees and, and their temple law enforcement officers. The Pharisees wanted to arrest him. The temple officers come back and, and they don't arrest him. We, we find a division within the Pharisees themselves as one of their own Nicodemus questions their approach to Jesus. Friends, we need to understand here the message of the gospel is an inherently divisive message. Jesus is an inherently divisive figure. Jesus himself in the book of Matthew, chapter 10, 34 to 39, Jesus says, don't think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Friends, Jesus is a divisive figure. And the message of the gospel is a divisive message. I bet many of you have experienced this in your own lives with friends or family or coworkers, where, where living for Jesus forces a conflict, a confrontation between a worldly person and somebody who's being led by the Spirit. And, and it's not that we desire conflict, and it's not that Jesus wanted this conflict or division, but the point he's making here is when you trust in him, when you believe in the truth, the world that is blinded by sin and our great spiritual adversary, the devil, who's blinded the minds of unbelievers, right? The world doesn't want to hear the truth of Jesus. They don't want to hear that they're sinners in need of a Savior. And so when you proclaim that message, it's going to create conflict and division. Friends, neutrality is not an option when it comes to Jesus. By his own words, Jesus forces us to choose who we believe him to be. Is he really the Messiah who ministered for God's glory, with God's authority, as God's emissary to provide God's security, or is he something else? Maybe just an interesting teacher. Maybe one spiritual option among many. Maybe a fraud. Maybe a madman. But you see, friends, you cannot sit on the fence when it comes to Jesus. He doesn't give us that option. As the temple law enforcement officers declare in verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. So where do you stand today? Are you one who who mutters over Jesus? Or are you one who marvels over him? Bringing, bringing you to your knees in wonder and astonishment as you recognize no one ever spoke like this man. Historian Philip Schaff describes the incomparable influence of Jesus Christ. He says this Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon. He shed more light on things human and divine than all the philosophers and scholars combined. Without eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussion, learned volumes, works of art, songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient in modern times. Yes, friends, no one ever spoke like this man, like this Jesus. And no one ever offered what Jesus holds out to each and every one of us this morning. Rivers of living water. Have you come to the rock of salvation? Have you tasted of the flowing waters of life? Have have the Spirit's waters, after drinking deeply of Jesus, have the Spirit's waters flown out from within you? Have you drunk from the well of our salvation? If you haven't, friends, you can. You see, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You too can come to Jesus. And Jesus will quench your every thirst. Let me close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you so much for sending your Son, Jesus, into this world so that we could know you better, so that we could have a relationship with you, so that we could be forgiven of our sins and cleansed of all of our unrighteousness. And Lord, as we reflect on this Christmas week and the meaning of Christmas, the reason for the season, The Savior has come. The Messiah has come. Hope has come. Lord, I just pray that none of us would miss out on the opportunity to drink from the well of living water, the rock of our salvation, the one from whom streams of life flow freely to all who will come and drink so that we might thirst no more. Lord Jesus, if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't tasted of the waters of salvation, 
If there's anybody at home watching right now who's never tasted of the waters of salvation and come to you and and drink freely from all that you offer us, forgiveness of sin and and new life and reconciliation with God and, and joy and joy in abundance. God, I pray that that individual, whether here today, watching at home, watching later this week, I pray that no no one would miss out on this great opportunity. Whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me, may drink freely of the well of salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for that great hope, for that promise of all promises. And may we celebrate that this week especially more than ever as we think about Christmas and you as our great Messiah. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. And then I'm going to invite our ushers to come and dismiss us uh, row by row. They'll, they'll dismiss from the front row to the back. And uh, same thing up in the balcony. This benediction comes from Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you, and Merry Christmas this week. We want to invite you to embrace the hope, joy, peace, and love that Christmas brings, especially during these unprecedented and chaotic times. It is, after all, a spectacular reminder that into the darkness, the light of the world was born. We hope you'll join us at one of our two services, Wednesday, December 23rd at 6.30 p.m. or Thursday, December 24th at 3 p.m. There will also be a live stream option on Thursday, December 24th at 3 p.m. We look forward to celebrating the hope and joy that's found in Jesus with you. You can reserve your seats now at lakesfree.org.